If you want to know what's really happening when you pick up an electronic device, start using an app, or indeed use Bitcoin, my guest on this week's CoinGeek Conversations is one of the best people in the world to ask. He's been thinking and writing about technology and media ever since the cyberpunk era of the early 90s, which was before most people had even heard of the internet. He's the Professor of Media Theory and Digital Economics at the City University of New York, and the author of at least 17 books, among many other achievements. Douglas Rushkoff, welcome and thank you for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. Well, I'd like to go right back to the beginning of your career, if you, if, if, if you don't mind. Um, I saw that you studied film initially as a student, and I'm wondering whether, did you have ambitions to be a movie director, or what was that all about? Well, really more, um, I mean, I studied film some, I was actually a theater director. I went to, I went to Princeton, then California Institute of the Arts, and was, was a, a master's in theater directing, and doing plays around the world at Edinburgh Festival and the Public Theater in New York and a bunch of stuff in L.A. And I got um, – I loved theater, but I got disillusioned by theater, really, by the the elitism of it. You know, I, I was doing a production of Three Penny Opera in Los Angeles where the least expensive seat was $45, <laughs> which in, in, in 2000s dollars, it would be like $100 to get into a – play a Bertolt Brecht radical you know Marxist play and it it also theater started to feel very predictable and, and to me the the traditional arc the you know rising action and crisis and climax and learning and recognition hmm. um, and I was really looking for something more participatory interactive unknown unpredictable and just around then was when my strangest friends from college uh, the weirdest, most theatrical, grateful, deadhead, acid freak, you know, colleagues of mine um, ended up moving out to the Bay Area and working for the likes of Intel and Apple and Silicon Graphics and and Sun. And I really wanted to know why would weird psychedelic people be making computers, which seemed to me to be such a rigid, I, I worked with computers in, in high school. It was, you know, me and the geeks, these mm. were the pocket protector kids. So, you know, that's when I found out, this was in the late eighties that, oh my gosh, there is a renaissance happening. This is a culture of, you know, and all the, the names that we know now, the Stuart Brand and Howard Rheingold and, and, uh, Jaron Lanier and Mondo 2000, this early hippie, you know, acid taking a group of people, uh, you know, uh, working at Intel all day and scraping the buds off a peyote cactus at night and comparing their, you know, transcendental visionary experiences. This was the, you know, in terms of media, then this was the most exciting area at that time. To me, certainly, yeah, it was. I mean, there were people who were excited about, you know, cable television and the opportunity to make rock videos. Um, the the rise of animation by the Simpsons and Ren and Stimpy and 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 South Park. I mean, so there was a lot of sort of independent Beavis and Butthead, a lot of independent media and different cultural phenomena happening. The the internet seemed to be the way that human beings were going to connect up to one another in one giant Gaian global brain and sort of realize 
planetary consciousness. You know, the sky was the, the, not even the limit, you know, in terms of what we imagined, you know, that we were on the cusp of the next stage of human evolution. Right. So there was a there was a strong idealistic component to to the media uh, possibilities that, 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 that appeared at that time. And I'm wondering whether do you draw any kind of connection between that and the the BSV crowd that you came across at the recent CoinGeek conference? Because there's a lot of talk of a, a brighter future and so on with Bitcoin. I mean, yes and no. You know, in all honesty, I I, I don't see a better ledger as the solution to the problem. It's interesting. So my first impression of BSV, and I told them this too, was that this was for investors. It was very flashy and lots of graphics and things moving around. And it looked to me almost like a futuristic satire of, you know, the future of blockchain investing. And so much of the language seems to say that, oh, you know, get this token or do this thing and you'll be part of the next big thing. Um, but that's not what their actual intention is. When you actually speak to them, they're talking about sort of the, the OG Bitcoin blockchain crowd, right? This is the, the old guard, the original ethos that what Bitcoin was for was not to get a few investors rich off an inflated token. What Bitcoin was for was to distribute the power of authentication globally so that money would be as cheap as we needed it to be at any moment, that money was here to really optimize our transactions, that what we were trying to do was increase the velocity of money, the readiness of capital to move into an almost super fluid economic state where anyone who needs capital at any moment, that vacuum is immediately filled by the capital they need to do the thing they need to do. Uh, it will never be for want of money that we can't do something. Um, and that's, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. My concern is that we not end up looking at uh, uh, these external forms of authentication as the end game. In other words, I think that blockchains substitute for human trust may be better than central authorities do. You know, I would rather have a big distributed system that we all count on, where currency becomes like a commons, a, a, a public resource, rather than something that is loaned into existence by the pharaoh, you know, which is what we're still working with. So I love that. But it's one stage toward then moving into a world where we trust one another as humans, where we're, we're involved with each other locally, and we're not every bit of value that we exchange with each other has to be recorded. So that if I'm doing this, you know, interview with you, you don't pay me. If you tell me, oh, Doug, you know, there's a book that you really should read about this, and I get value from reading that book. Do I have to then pay you blockchain because of the recommendation? It's like, and where do you draw the line? You know, and that's where so that's where it's it's it gets interesting. Looking at your um, early work in relation to the internet, um, you liked things about the internet that were promising to empower citizens and uh, decentralize power away from corporations. And I feel that your 
interest in Bitcoin is going a little bit in the same direction. There were, there was the original idea, ideals of Bitcoin um, are somewhat similar. And you've already expressed some reservations about the way it, in your mind, has been subverted. Right. It's hard, right? It's hard to create any system, even a decentralized system, is hard. It's hard to not give way to the, the monopoly players. It's really hard for a well-meaning peer-to-peer indigenous community, like the indigenous community of the net or the indigenous community of blockchain, it's hard not to get colonized by the big, bad, existing, powerful players. So, you know, you look at uh, the original, you know, uh, proof of work, it was easy for people with big computers and lots of electricity to dominate proof of work. But now you look at, say, proof of stake, which replaces it, which says basically what? That the people with the most money get to ex- get to authenticate the most transactions and get the most service fees. So there's this there's this way that no matter what system we put in place, it feels like there's always a a legacy player that ends up really able to to exploit it. But on the other hand, if you look at the internet, um, the powers of Facebook, Google, and Amazon are, are the, the big powers and they're new. And uh, AOL uh, is not there. In right. that respect, the, the, the guard has changed on the internet, hasn't it? It has and it hasn't. I mean, so the cast of 100 billionaires who run the world cycles. Right. You know, so the, <laughs> through, so there's a new 10 guys who are running everything. There's right. A, Bezos is now the Rockefeller. But in some ways, that just reifies. In some ways, you know, when I look at most of the early internet economists, you know, the Kevin Kelly writing 10 new rules of the new economy, it looked to me less like, oh, here's the new revolutionary digital economy, rather than than here's how to prevent the digital economy from actually happening. That it's this, it's the libertarians, as I see it, these disruption people are the reactionary force. They're the people who are looking to keep traditional capitalism going and not to allow this, you know, Bitcoin SV future that, that mm. we're, uh, uh, you know, nibbling at. In terms of Bitcoin SV then, you talked about um, not wanting to monetize everything. I guess one of the USBs of, of BSV, which is microtransactions, is perhaps something that you're not that keen on, really. There's a difference between a social network and a publishing platform. And I think if you're going to start giving kids cash for the TikToks that they've made. So, you know, instead of just getting a like now, you get some money. Um, I don't know what they're really incentivizing. And what's going to lead to you getting paid more? I mean, showing your breasts is going to lead right. to you getting paid more. And I and we're going to, you know, I, I feel like an, an, an unedited chaotic free-for-all of people passing each other money for their social interaction, all of this tipping, um, ends up incentivizing certain 
certain things. It's not incentivizing civics. And to me, the, 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 the possibility of these spaces is to engender a new sense of civic responsibility for one another. And that, that's non-transactional, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I spoke to Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, and he, he was involved with one of our conferences. And I must say, he was completely against the idea of monetizing Wikipedia. He didn't think that it would have a good outcome. But I mean, it may be that those monetization uh, aspects appropriate for completely different things like the Internet of Things, where little bits of data coming from, I don't know, streetlights or plants or something that 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 will enable um, all sorts of business models that we haven't seen yet. For sure. For sure. But when you look at the greatest achievements of the Internet, of which Wikipedia is one of them, that's a a non-compensated uh, uh, activity. And when I look at the way, you know, robots can repeat so many human tasks, and the only real resistance we have to that idea is, well, then, what am I going to do for a job? It seems like we're trapped in a, a you know, 13th century model of employment and compensation and markets and all that maybe we can actually liberate ourselves from. Part of what COVID seems to have taught us is that there's really not that many jobs that need to be done. You know, we can all, if we have enough money to buy food um, and, and electricity, we're all pretty much fine without mortgage actuarial services and without the, you know, third sales division of blah, blah, you know, that most of us are doing very non-essential work. So what if we only paid for what's actually super essential, the stuff we really, really, really need? We start, I, I just think we could start moving in a different in a different direction, then the power of Bitcoin SV wouldn't be the coin at all. It would be the coordination of activity, the tracing of legacy. You know, we've so lost. We didn't make an internet with two-way linking. We made an internet with one-way linking, so we don't know. So, you know, a movie like uh, a Social Dilemma can come out on Netflix, quoting me and 30 other people who are my friends for the last 20 years, and nobody knows where any of those quotes came from because they're just speaking them. You know, the, to me, the Bitcoin SV, uh, uh, the ideal function of it is almost Talmudic. In, in origin, like a, like a, a knowledge database, a way to, to collect and concatenate human, the wealth of human knowledge, to give credit, not credits. So in a way, that goes back to an idea from the, the earlier tech revolution of the global brain, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, and Ted Nelson's, uh, Ted Nelson was one of the first, you know, when he talked about Xanadu, you know, as his sort of model of cyberspace, but he he un, his his vision of it had two way linking, where any time you link to someone, they would know yeah. you've linked. And it was just a pretty arbitrary decision that meant that we have only one way linking, wasn't it? It could have been the other way, right? And it would have changed everything because all of a sudden, if you have two way linking, now you have accountability, and that's the reason we have you know QAnon and everything else. It's because there's no accountability for anything that happens on the internet. It's all one way. Future. There is definitely a job that BSV would would be able to help with. I'm sure. Right. I, I mean, the other thing I was going to 
other sort of point of connection I was going to ask you about is that you we've received the Marshall McLuhan Award uh, uh-huh. in, in 2002. And I'm wondering, do you think, I mean, what, is, what, what does McLuhan have to say to us today? And, and is Bitcoin a medium, for instance? Well, yeah. I mean, it's both, you know, and everything, that's the whole thing. Everything's both medium and message. Everything's both cool and hot. You know, they all fold into each other in that yin-yangy way. But what, what, what is discreet, I think, is McLuhan would argue that we're moving from the age of television to a digital age, and that these are two fundamentally different media environments, as different as, you know, writing was from the printing press or the printing press was from radio and television. And that television was largely about hallucination, about image, because, you know, the way the television image is created, you have to participate, your brain has to participate in rendering the image from the scan line. So it's sort of training you in the process of hallucination, of imagination, of of illusion, where digital technology is all about memory. It's about memory and recall. In the, the McLuhan said in, in the, the, the main quality of digital technology would be a perfect memory, perfect recall. And to my mind, that's what a good blockchain really is, where everything that's happened is retrievable as if it just happened right now. You know, there's no distance. It's Everything is in memory. And it's a scary thought for those of us who are ashamed of what we may have just done two weeks ago, but it's a different way to live. It's a highly accountable world. Like they said on the well, when you signed into the well, one of the earliest bulletin boards started by Stuart Brand and those folks, the whole earth catalog back in the 80s, it said, you know, you own your own words. And they didn't just mean in terms of copyright, they meant in terms of you're responsible for what you say, because it's indelible. This is the digital realm. You, Your words don't fade off acoustically. They are staying. And I think that's what uh, that's what Bitcoin can do. What, what a good blockchain can do is really uh, help amplify that aspect of digital culture, which is its real, you know, its real power and potentially its real horror. Well, you have this, you have your book, um, Team Human, and your podcast, Team Human. And so I'm beginning to see that you're describing a way in which Bitcoin potentially joins up some of those things that uh, allow us to see a vision of a more human world where there's accountability, there's responsibility, and there's, and there's access to, to things instead of them just disappearing into the ether forever. Yeah. I mean, there was a quality to the early internet, which wasn't really the way it was, but there was a quality, there's a quality to life even, you know, especially with all of these very ephemeral networks and Snapchats and things that you're just kind of pissing in the wind all the time. You know, nothing gets any traction. How many, but I've written, what, you know, 18, 19 books. And it's like, what good did it do? That, that somehow that we're going to get a record, that there's a new there's we're concatenating something we're putting that's why i like to use almost talmud as a, a metaphor for it that we're compiling something that there is a wikipedia like quality to a well uh, 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 a well executed blockchain that this is this is 
This is what we've done up till now. This is our this is our potential energy. This is our our knowledge battery. You know, it's a uh, and that goes back to Al Gore's original dream of the internet. He would say back when he was when he was pitching it to government, he would say. I think we have all the knowledge we need to solve a host of global problems. It's just that one piece of it's over here, one piece of it's over there. What if you could have access to all of it? You know, and that's we still don't have that. But maybe um, you know something like a, a blockchain can 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 be that that wayback machine of our fantasy. I mean, one of the things that I'm interested in with the whole Bitcoin idea is whether it is actually more complicated than the internet. When you look back to 1995 or whatever, everybody had to understand what a website was. It looked a little bit like television, but it wasn't television. And I think it's easy for us to forget that there were all sorts of concepts that people needed to take on board in order to understand what the internet is that now are so familiar that we can't even really recognize that anybody might not understand them. And I'm wondering whether Bitcoin is in the same category as that, or whether, as it often seems, it is just a lot more complicated. And um, it, maybe it'll just have to be hidden from people's view when it becomes successful. Yeah, I mean, except for those of us who really care, I think the blockchain operates more at the level of, say, TCPIP, you know, where without TCPIP, the internet wouldn't work, but nobody really knows what it is except those of us who really care. You know, we know how to click on things and we understand we're bringing a file down or we're putting it up. We sort of understand what FTP is, but we don't understand that. The same way on televisions, we don't really understand how images are processed and scan lines work. So I feel like blockchain is kind of that. I do think we have to get to the place where people understand basically what a public and private key are. That's kind of, and it's not that hard. It's basically as hard as knowing how to do a knock-knock joke. You know, <laughs> it's sort of... But maybe, I mean, maybe we don't even need that. I mean, you don't need to know what your IP address is on a computer, for instance. And there may be ways that even those things can be buried, I think. Right. I guess so. Unless you're publishing on the web, you've got to know how to go in and point your DNS, you know, at the right thing. I think it's useful to know that a basic architecture, it's good to know there's a movie, there's a TV studio, and they're recording things on tape and then sending them through the wires or the air. I mean, the, the, the basics, but no, you don't have to know. You don't have to know. But you, you, and it's true, and the public and private key could also be made to disappear from public view. I mean, I think the, dif the difference is that with television, right, we didn't know, we need to know how the television worked. Uh, we, didn't, we don't need to know how a lot of the internet works. But in both cases, the sort of public face of the medium was very obvious. You're sitting in front of a cathode ray tube, or you're uh, looking at the World Wide Web and something may or may not come there. With Bitcoin, it's still not quite obvious what the what what you're going to be looking at or even what you're going to be doing while you're taking advantage of it you know right and do you need to you know do i need to right so if i'm want to include a quote or a picture in a book i'm writing do i need to know how the blockchain can facilitate my process or do i just want to drag the picture into a thing and find out how much do i have to pay to use this in a book per copy oh good done 
You know, I didn't have to know even I don't even have to know the 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 on my chip. How does it send processes to parallel memory and then recombine them in the core? It doesn't matter, right? It, it may be that for those kind of consumer facing uh, uses, a lot of people will just think they're using the World Wide Web. And it, even though there's a whole different mechanism going on behind the scenes, as far as they're concerned, it's just another thing they do online. For, for industrial uses, it'll be quite different. But I think that, you know, that may be that the, the consumer experience may be surprisingly similar to, to what we're used to already. Right. We don't know, you know, when we go to an airline booking site, we don't understand what Sabre is or where Sabre came from before it was used for what it's used now. It was a military, uh, it was to keep track of military planes or to, to protect the skies from, because you kept track of each plane that was in the commercial system. So you'd know if there was something that was not part of the commercial system. Then they're like, oh, we could actually use this to keep track of planes for the for the, the business. And then they get Sabre. So uh, I think it's sort of the same. We don't really, uh, there's a lot of stuff we don't have to know. And no, I'm a, a an advocate of media literacy. You know, that's, I think, you know, program or be programmed is my whole thing. If you're not using the, the technology, the technology is using you. At the same time, there's a level of programming that you don't have to know and you have to trust. The people making the operating systems have to trust the people who made the assembly language. The people making the software have to trust the operating system. The people making the applications have to trust the software le level. And those of us using the applications have to trust the, the application makers. So you can't know everything. You know, and blockchain is kind of a good architecture for a world in which we have to trust something, you know? Let me ask you finally, um, I mean, Bitcoin's actually been around for about 10 years now. Do you think, coming to the BSV conference, is this the start? Do you feel that this is the start of something big? Um, because maybe it is, but maybe it's still not going to happen for another few years. What stage do you think we've reached? I don't know. You know, I've known people for at least five years who have been trying to create kind of blockchain-based affiliate networks for kids to get coin for their recommendations or their videos or their this or their that. And I feel like currently most of the blockchain world is still looking for an application to use blockchain for. And I think the ones who are going to be successful are going to be less public facing. I don't feel like the, the, I don't really see a future in an economy around social media. I think it really, it doesn't, it, it feels to me, and McLuhan would say this, the television was fueled by advertising, by advertising and marketing. And so what we're trying to do is fuel the internet with advertising and marketing, which is why the internet's become about surveillance. Surveillance economics is an extension of television advertising, where I think it's going to be something else. I think it's going to be a, a fundamentally different kind of economy that fuels the, the, the growth of the internet. And it might be some kind of knowledge economy rather than an entertainment economy. So it's not going to be kids getting money for unboxing something on YouTube. You know, 
the, the, the reason why they're not getting a lot of money for that is not just because YouTube isn't sharing a lot of money. It's because there's really, I don't know that there's a lot of money in it. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think social media was always, you know, that's only part of, that's one example of what it can do. So um, I'm glad to hear you think there's a lot of potential in the uh, the other stuff, the, uh, the right. industrial. Right, in rights and legal systems and anything that requires a giant database, you know, but an open, fair, less algorithmically tilted and biased collection of data. I mean, I want to see, I mean, the the way we'll know the blockchain has arrived is when the blockchain does to Google what Google did to Yahoo. And I think it can. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Douglas. It's been really <laughs> great you. talking to you. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, bye for now. Thanks very much to Douglas Rushkoff. Always great to get an outside perspective on the world of Bitcoin SV, as well as hearing about those amazing early days of the internet, of course. Join me next week for very much an insider's view of BSV with the CTO of Enchain, Steve Shadders, to talk about nano payments and lots else besides. So please join me next week if you can on CoinGeek Conversations. For now, from me, Charles Miller, thanks for listening and goodbye.